this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Support for this week's show comes from The Great American Read. It's back. PBS has a list of America's 100 best-loved novels, and they need your help to pick number one. Go to pbs.org and see the list, vote for your favorites, and share with your friends. Join the conversation at hashtag GreatReadPBS, then join host Meredith Vieira for The Great American Read this fall, Tuesdays at 8, 7 central, starting September 11th on your PBS station. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 277, recording on Thursday, September 6th. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky. We're coming to you from bookriot.com. This is the Book Riot Podcast. This is the Book Riot. You know, it's all about <laughs> where you, you, you put your emphasis. Uh, it's fall. Officially fall. Oh, buddy. It's like 95 here. It's not fall yet. My kids were asking me, like, when's it officially fall? And, like, the vernal or the autumnal equinox. And, like, you know what? There are no rules here. In my book, September is fall. Even though it feels in most places like this, the, the surface of the earth, September is a fall month. And this waiting till mid September for fall to start, just like waiting till December twenty first for it to actually be winter. It's all garbage. I don't know who the, <laughs> the, the winter lobbies behind all of this. The winter. Uh, it's big winter. Big winter. <laughs> um. Anyway, so and you know the calendar turns. There's really the, that first two Tuesdays is just an enormous book release mm-hmm. day. Yeah, uh, earlier this week was crazy. You and I are both into a new Stephen Johnson book, which we're very excited about. I got mine yesterday. You were all... You, Rebecca was like the person you know who is one episode ahead of you on a TV show and they're like texting you about what happens in next week's show and you know they're not there. Because she started... She impulse bought the ebook of Farsighted by Stephen Johnson like starting to tell me stuff about it. I was like, I just told you I'm going to read the book. <laughs> But I'm excited, Jeff. I know, I'm so excited. excited. I didn't spoil anything. You told me there were charts. That's that's spoiler enough. Look, that's a teaser. That's just to whet the appetite. Yeah, you know, one man's teaser is another man's spoiler. Uh, that's something else. I did. But. I did text you about Stephen Johnson throwing shade at Malcolm Gladwell, which. You know, Malcolm Gladwell, you know, this New Yorker thing, we're not, we don't have this oh, on the no. agenda for our show. We don't really want to get into Mm-mm. it because it's not really our bailiwick, but people were show, some showing some behind. Are about the New Yorker they thing. <laughs> they really, they really were. There were behinds on display, and Malcolm Gladwell's was one of them. Yeah, that wasn't a good look. Uh, and uh, Stephen Johnson throws some more yeah, analytical, critical thinking mm-hmm. varieties of shade at Malcolm Gladwell. But I thought, you know, you were celebrating New Stephen Johnson Day on Tuesday, so I thought you had the book. Also. I, I did. I'm I, I'm I'm in the middle of this Myers Briggs book, which you, are you mm-hmm. you jettisoned to, to go right to Farside? Well, I can tell I'm you didn't sorta, finish it. I did not finish it yet, See? but I'm into it. I'm into it. Yeah. I'm kind of reading both. As a but serial that's book what, monogamist, that's the price I pay. I couldn't switch right over to Farside. The personality brokers, which is great. Yeah, um, wild, wild stuff. <laughs> uh, which I don't know. We're both reading um, review copies, which is really cool. Uh, mm-hmm. And actually, a listener to the show 
I can't remember your name right now. Publicist got yes, us copies. Good job. Thank you. And we when we were it. making noises about Myers Briggs and love languages and mm-hmm. and all of the above. Um, really fascinating. We could just do a uh, since we don't do better reading through books. I know. Anymore, I was thinking about. We that. could just have a like Jeff and Rebecca talk about nerdy books for an hour episode maybe like later in the winter when it's quiet yeah like after the credits like a post show like 15 or 20 minutes i don't know i'm 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 about two-thirds of the way done the personality brokers and there's a lot of nutty stuff that goes on Mm -hmm. i think the nuttiest thing is that the first client for uh isabel Briggs, I can't remember. It's a mother daughter. Yeah, yeah, that it's the daughter who productizes mm-hmm. um, her mom's personality thinking into a series of you know forced choice questions that you know it's 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 a very clear antecedent of the the contemporary Myers Briggs. But the first paying client was the OSS, which is the precursor to the CIA, so they could <laughs> fit spies in World War II to the best job for them. Which sounds so bananas, but like there you know we need to know which one of these are the best to be a train saboteur versus a um, <laughs> operations cryptologist. It's just wild stuff. Well, especially when like for folks. Who aren't familiar with the book, we get the quick sort of top yes. level teaser for it is there's no empirical evidence that the Myers Briggs personality types are real things, yes. yet they are used widely to make decisions about employment mm-hmm. and about like who gets into the CIA. And I, like I've heard about it being used for dorm assignments. Like people have to take their um, MBTI tests in different companies for, you know, like company bonding activities, mm-hmm. team building kinds of things and there's no evidence that it's real but it's wild it's just it's just utterly bananas anyway i don't know we've had had three books we're both reading at the same time this fall which is unusual the summer fall bad Mm -hmm. blood uh which is the story of theranos which actually just shut down yesterday Uh, mm -hmm. um and then the personality brokers we're talking about right now by merv erme erme and then mm-hmm. uh, Farsighted by Stephen Johnson. Oh, all and we both just read Buttermilk Graffiti by Edward oh, Lee yeah, in the same we week. We're going to talk about on a slow news week, but we didn't get one. Didn't get a right. slow news week. Anyway, so. Anyway, well, we can have that. a book club. You know, listen, I was going to do something before the first sponsor, but let me do the first sponsor. So okay. just nerd it out about nerd things. Show title. Uh, <laughs> this episode of the Book Riot Podcast is brought to you by The Good Neighbor, The Life and Work of Fred Rogers by Maxwell King, and narrated by. LeVar Burton. That's right. Crying already. LeVar Burton. If you're riding the wave of Mr. Rogers' nostalgia with the rest of America, don't miss The Good Neighbor, the life and work of Fred Roger. R- Rogers. Fred Rogers. Maxwell King has written the first ever full-length biography of Mr. Rogers himself, tracing Fred's personal, professional, artistic life through decades the work, uh, decades of work. And who better to voice the story of a PBS reading-related icon than LeVar Burton? Best known as the host of Reading Rainbow, LeVar was personally mentored by Fred. I didn't know that. Hmm. Between LeVar's undisputable, undisputable knack for storytelling and the depth of King's content, The Good Neighbor audiobook is an exceptional listening experience. The Good Neighbor tells the story of this icon drawing on original interviews, oral histories, archival documents. King traces Rogers' personal... I said this already. Mm-hmm. Uh, only to return to the neighborhood increasingly sophisticated episodes written in collaboration with experts on child development. It's an engaging story, rich in detail. The Good Neighbor is the definitive portrait of a beloved figure cherished by multiple generations. So really interesting thing to do. So this says, 
there's there's an episode in the book that that people don't know about where Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers, walked away from the show oh. to, tr- to make TV for adults, but then he came back to the original show, but de- decided to try to do more sophisticated things so he could follow that journey there, which I didn't know. I I have to say I watched uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood as a kid. I did not notice a big schism in the sophistication of the content maybe that came after I was uh, uh, a wee one. But you can tell the story, the behind-the-scenes story. A fascinating guy, a fascinating life. Um, our gentle and strong soul at the same time. So that's The Good Neighbor, The Life and Work of Fred Rogers by Maxwell King, narrated in, on audio by LeVar Burton. That's a brilliant move. Oh, so good. All right, so Barnes & Noble follow-up. Talk to me. I will follow up first about uh, listener emails about our debate, ranking, discussion, order of uh, our five, my five, my five. I mean, you were they all you. about how Walmart shouldn't have been on the list? No, actually, none of them were about that. <laughs> You're all alone on that island. Uh, <laughs> there was a couple. One, people were just voting for what they would like. The Canadians both did and did not want Indigo to buy it. One, they wanted, on the one hand, they did want them to buy Indigo to buy Barnes & Noble because that means the likelihood of them having Indigo next to them, the, the chances go up, you know, the mm, expats mm-hmm. especially. Um, on the other hand, they did not want um, Barnes & Noble to be a millstone that that uh, would bring Indigo asunder, which, as we talked about, I think is a real possibility if someone takes yeah. – someone like Indigo takes on Barnes & Noble and it, go, it still continues its downward spiral, then it's big enough to take Indigo with it. Whereas if it's a Walmart, Amazon, Rakuten, something like that, they don't want it to go out of business. It would, it would be a hit, but it's not going to – it's not an existential threat to the larger uh, parent company. Thought that was really interesting. Um, no one wants Amazon to buy Barnes & Noble, not surprisingly. <laughs> um, I don't think from a reader's point of view, that doesn't get you anything you don't already have. I, and I think that's right. I think that's yeah, right. I agree. Um, another, someone threw a different hat into the ring that I didn't think of, that I, but I should have, I think, was the Hudson Booksellers Group. <gasps> oh, yeah. Which, I didn't think of that at yeah, all. Yeah, which is, as, as you know, if you don't know, if you don't out there, they operate a chain of airport and train station bookstores, basically, where people are traveling. It's probably a Hudson Booksellers. That's a dedicated bookstore in whatever airport or train station you happen to find it. Now, I don't know if it passes the the Shinsky's differential of being, quote-unquote, a book retailer because it is a wholly owned subsidiary of the Drury Group, which their old conglomeration is all different stores that are in airports. Oh. Most of the duty-free stores you see in America mm-hmm. or you know, even in international ports that serve America are owned by the Drury Group. The Hudson is just one of their branches, one of their chains in that group. So I don't know. We could quibble if we wanted to uh, about that. I'm going to think about that. Yeah, I don't know if, that's, if you're going to allow that. Um, I'm going to ponder my quibbles. Michelle and I were talking about a little bit today. Her quibble with your quibble. Was if if Walmart can't be considered a book retailer, can Amazon be considered a book retailer? Because Amazon doesn't just sell books, so it's really about um, like what percentage, you know, how many books you have to sell. If you sell a whole bunch of other things, do you have to be considered a book retailer 
to be. I feel like I just said a Dr. Seuss riddle it's in there a, somewhere. It is. It's tricky. That's a, I think it's, you know, my like gut answer is, well, Amazon started as a book retailer yeah. and then expanded to other things, which is why we still think of it as a book retailer. Right. But, but I was once maybe, a toddler, but I, no right. one would reasonably call me well, a toddler anymore. Even um, though I have bandages all over me from <laughs> down yesterday. And you ride a scooter I ride a scooter to the offices. So, <laughs> But all of those, it, you know, it looks like a scooter uh, walks mm-hmm. like a toddler. I don't know. But anyway, I thought that was a fair... You it know, is a fair question. Is, is a, if Amazon is, then Walmart might be. It's a stronger case for Walmart. Now, maybe you throw Amazon out in that situation. Maybe it's not to in, the inclusion of Walmart mm-hmm. that you would need to do. You'd have to throw out Amazon. It's really, do, does the company's origin matter? To, I would say I would say no. <laughs> I, I, yeah, just because why would it? Um, or like, I, I guess maybe what percentage of their business is books is would be the question. And maybe a, pers- a small enough percentage of Amazon's business is books at this point, yeah. but um, I'm not sure that it would be equivalent to like the percentage of books that Walmart sells out of all the other yeah. things, which I, mean, I guess is also my question for the Drury group. So now right. that I'm pondering my quibbles is what percentage of their business is Hudson books. And frankly, what percentage of Barnes and Noble's business is books at this point, if you've been well, to Barnes and Noble recently, you know that between, you know, stationery and games and cards and coffee and everything else, they're not hundred. This is all, this is all just for fun. I mean, <laughs> but I think people did like the idea um, if there was any kind of, I wouldn't say consensus, but the most positive take was for Raccoon. Mm-hmm. People like that. Um, for the reasons I think we did too, frankly, is that they have the money, they have the means, motive, and opportunity, really, um, to make a big play for Barnes & Noble there. I guess while we're here, real, eh, let's, let's hold it. Well, this is kind of more news um, okay. for the minute. We have a reader-listener survey up. There's yes, a link in do. the show notes, um, bookriot.com slash fall. Wait, I just did the wrong one. Yeah, oh, fall right. survey, .com reader survey. Damn it, Jeff. Bookriot.com slash fall survey. <laughs> Get it right, then wrong, then right again. A Jeff O'Neill story. Um, link in the show notes there. You can tell us about your life. Um, it helps us figure out what kinds of content we should be making. You know, it tells about you as a listener, reader. Um, also, will help us with advertisers to figure out what the right kind of books that um, they might be especially interested in advertising on the show, the site, so on and so forth. There, we have big. We have our own news this week. Confetti cannons. So how long have you been working on? I, I, do you have it? Do you have like a? It didn't. There wasn't really like a, a starting gun for us. Oh. We've been thinking about something like this for a long time. Okay, so more than a year because than a year. the pilot program for this ah. thing ran last July, and I think I started planning that in like April that's, or May. That's probably right. Yeah. So um, about a, close to a year and a half now that this has been ac- actively in the works, but it's a thing that we've been talking about for yeah. four or five years now. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a new baby in the world. Yes. Not literally though. Not literally. You, a digital down, baby. Digital babies are the only babies I have. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's called TBR. Tailored yes. book recommendations, yes. and the slug is like Stitch Fix for books, um, which is the way that we have been thinking and talking about it. That's the thing I've been wanting to make mm-hmm. forever. 
Uh, you can go to mytbr.co to check it out and sign up. And what happens is you complete a short survey about your reading habits, your preferences, what you like, what you want to read more of. You tell us, I want to be given books that keep me in my wheelhouse or books that expand my horizons or mix it up. And you'll be assigned to one of our bibliologists, which is a member of our crack team of expert readers uh, who's who is picked for you based upon the request that you've sent in, and they will send you either three recommendations by email once a quarter, which is $15 for the quarter or $49 for the year based on your requests, or a set of three hardcover books once Actual a quarter. Actual books in the mail. Actual books um, delivered by our friends at Print Bookstore in Portland, Maine. If yeah. you've listened to this show for a while, you've heard Josh Christie, one of the co-owners on here. And yes, yeah, so your bibliologist would pick the books for you, print would send them to you. You would get them in the mail by surprise with the letter from your bibliologist about why they chose those books for you. That level is $75 a quarter plus $4.79 shipping, or you can subscribe for a whole year for $300 and get free shipping. Mm -hmm. And at the end of each quarter, you get to do just like with Stitch Fix or Trunk Club or any of those customized clothing things, you get to give feedback about the books that you received or about the recommendations that you received and change up your requests if you want to so that your bibliologist gets to know you better and better and sends you better and better recommendations. Mm -hmm every time. Jeff, it is so exciting. <laughs> well, let's, I go let's to, talk. I mean, cause this is something you and I have been talking about it, it, and not exactly this form, but pretty darn close. I have to say something mm -hmm. like this for a long time. And I remember, I don't even remember what the name of that thing was. We went to, that was like a little conference with a bunch of other publishing jerks. Oh, book camp. Book right? camp. And I think we were, t this is the days, and maybe publishers still talk about discovery with a capital D of like, how do you get readers to know about your books and so on and so forth. And you and I have always, uh, I don't know, does shade come out of side eye? I don't know what the relation <laughs> of shade to side eye is, but with both side eye and shade, like, I don't think that there are readers out there that are like, I can't find any books to read. Whoever yeah, will help me. We've just rejected that yeah. readers have a discovery problem. Readers have like a curation they, problem. Yeah, they have really. a decision problem, right. right? Which is there are plenty of books out there. You go into a Barnes & Noble. You even go into Hudson Booksellers, a small. There's plenty of books to find. It's how do you get from... 10,000 books to 1,000 books to 10 books to the right couple of books. So that's not a – I don't think of that as a discovery problem. That's really kind of a delivery problem. And we've been talking about how to mix kind of what's cool about Stitch Fix, which is a clothing service. I don't know if, if you don't know Stitch Fix where you do a similar thing. You, you tell the, the company their styles. You fill out a survey. You tell them what you like and what your use cases are. And they send you clothes because people hate shopping and shopping is hard and so on and so forth. And this makes it super easy. And so we're like, wouldn't it be cool if Book Riot writ large, this is a Book Riot joint, you know, what we do is read books and talk about them, could serve as kind of a, a, a yenta, a matchmaker between people who want to read books but aren't like living and breathing books every single day um, and, and the books themselves. And we started talking about a couple different ways of doing it coming out of your experience doing quarterly and then the book mail we've done before those everyone gets the same book so it's kind of a there's sort of a regression to the mean there so like mm -hmm. most people pretty much like them but very few people will that book really be tailor made for them in this situation 
really it's getting the right book into the right person's hands and getting a reader, a buyer to trust us with it. And then we realized, you know, some people will, will want the hardcovers. They want them to show up to get the book mail as a gift for themselves um, that, you know, it's fun to do. But then some people don't like a hardcovers uh, or B don't want to pay that much money or C want the recommendations, but then want to go buy it from their independent bookstore or they want to go get it from the library or pick one of the three to read. So, or put it on their wish list for the holidays right, or the, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Someone else buy it for them. And so we came up, you know, kind of in concert, we did a project. So that those of you who are, have been insiders for a while, um, especially on the Epic level have, you know, taken a part in a pilot project where we had to figure out a whole bunch of things or we, Rebecca, did this. <laughs> I, I was there. I was like, Hey Rebecca, have, let's do this. And she's like, okay, I guess we're going to do this now. This is the thing I've been thinking about at three o'clock in the morning right, for a yes, long time. Right. And you know, we didn't know how long it would take to do the recommendations. Could we afford, um, to do it, especially at the hardcover level? Cause we, it, you heard Rebecca say it's $75 for three hardcovers, uh, as you know, most hardcovers are a little bit more than $25 a pop. Plus we have fulfillment and other things that go into it. And then the time it takes to do the recommendation. Well, we came up, you know, so we needed to figure out how much time it would take. We did dry runs of mailing stuff out. Basically came to a point where, you know, we could offer someone a pretty good service uh, to do it that way. So I'm excited about it. It's been, it's, it's available now, kind of soft launching out. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes. What's been the most interesting part for you doing it so far? Oh, the most interesting part. Well, now the most interesting part is that it took so long to develop it and right. all the little pieces that go into something like this. Yeah. Um, my sister was visiting last week. She's a nurse. And so this is just outside of anything that she experiences at work. And she was like, why did this take a year to make? <laughs> and when I started getting into like, well, you know, you have to decide like every single action that a person can take mm-hmm. in the process, like every single place they could click uh, in the process of completing a profile and what those, what the words should be there and where the click should take them and how we should word the questions that we ask people. We went for really open-ended, you know, what genres do you love? What do you want to read more of? What else should your bibliologist know about you? Um, Rather than check boxes that pre-narrow people Mm -hmm. into reading lives, we really wanted to make it as broad as possible. Um, I've been really pleasantly surprised hearing from the bibliologists who are all comprised of book right staff and contributors um, about the work that they're doing for like, these are people, their customers are people who love books and who read a lot. And most people don't want to get books that they've heard about, you know, already. So how do you get beyond um, what's popular and really start recommending unusual, interesting, surprising things to customers. Mm -hmm. That's been really fun to follow. Um, And just the responses, we launched it in July to the book, right insiders. And so now it's been a couple of months that they've received their books. Many of them have read a lot of the books that they got from their bibliologists and have been really happy with the directions they're going. And I'll say this is not, um, I think this is really relevant for Book Riot podcast listeners, but it's not mentioned in the copy on TBR anywhere because it's just integral to the way that the business functions. But you won't ever get a set of books that's all white people or mm-hmm. all men. Um, every set of three will include at least one woman and at least one person of color um, in the same way that we, re- we require that inclusivity uh, in Book Riot's content. We've carried that over. Uh, so 
So it's not going to just be books that had big marketing budgets that everyone has heard of. You actually are pretty unlikely to get those unless that's what you're asking for. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can see the um, requests that readers make in inside the TBR system before they're getting assigned out to their bibliologist and the like. The depth and the specificity of those has been really fascinating. Oh, that's interesting. It's, yeah. yeah, it's given me a lot of like, oh man, readers, like what nerds? This is so <laughs> great. It's just, it's so, it's so great. So if you're interested, mytbr.co is where you can complete your profile, which will take you about five minutes and sign up to get started. And you can, let's see, I'm trying to think if I'm, if I was, if I weren't, if I were hearing this for the first time, I guess I want to know a couple things. One, I can sign up for, to get them on a quarterly basis, either in print or mm-hmm. digital, or I can do an annual all at one time. Correct. Yeah, I can do it yes. that way. Uh, international. Uh, what about? Tell me about international. If I'm not oh, in the U.S., if you live outside the U.S., you can get the recommendations only version. Yeah. You cannot get the hardcover version. Uh, at least not yet. We don't know how that would work. Um, there may be additional options in the future. Like right. I would love to offer a paperback option. I would love to offer a YA specific option. So the options that you see there now aren't the only ones that will ever be there. But these are the ones that we are starting with. Um, how about uh, shipping and sales tax? Is that included? Not included? What what can you tell me? Is, is my 75 bucks for three hardcovers all-inclusive? What do I have to have to pony up for? You, if you get just the quarterly subscription, mm-hmm. you're going to pay four seventy nine in shipping as well. If you right. get the annual subscription for hardcovers, you'll get your shipping for free. Right. Uh, on the recommendations only level, it's $15 a quarter. Or if you sign up for the whole year, you get a discount. So it's $49 for the year mm-hmm. rather than 60 So there's some incentivizing there to get annual subscriptions. Yeah. You will get, as I was saying, you'll get to give feedback to your bibliologist every time. Um, and if for some reason you're not happy with how that went, you can request a different bibliologist and our head person, her name is Jamie, uh, who's running, who's in charge of the bibliologist over there, will assign you someone else. So just if you've had any experiences with other personalized services like this, um, you'll be able to say, like, here's how I want my recommendations to change or to improve, or hey, could you match me up with mm-hmm. someone else? Um, no harm, no foul there. Um, it, the books, unlike Stitch Fix, this isn't like you try the jeans on. If you don't like them, you send them back. Um, with TBR, they're right. non-refundable and non-returnable. So so what we we do have a plug-in where you can sh- give us your Goodreads profile, and we'll check that to make sure we're not sending you something that you've mm-hmm. already read. Yeah. So I mean, the theory is, I mean, it's interesting that Barnes and Noble we've been talking about and they're having so much trouble. Is the old model? I mean, even Amazon is like this, frankly, where the model is we're going to have as many books in one place as possible. And you can come like a beachcomber and go through them or like bring some information that you heard somewhere else and bring them to us and you can pick off our giant shelves, right? Go find mm-hmm. it or browse or whatever. This is, this is saying there might be another way of doing this, which is you tell us what you want and we'll go find it. We'll go find something for you. Mm-hmm. Let, let us do the work of having read the books, um, of knowing books, of being intimately attuned to what books are coming out and what people like about them and all the other things that we do in the course of being book writer ourselves and our bibliologists. But it's, 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 like, it's like ordering the chef's menu at a restaurant rather, rather than ordering... <laughs> no, I'm serious, right? Like, yeah, yeah. The, the chef knows food better than I do, so probably, uh, unless it's like an allergy or some real revolting thing, and I can tell them that. In this case, you could say, I don't want X, Y, or Z. Mm-hmm. 
you know, let, let the chef do chef things and I will do the, the eating and the reading, not having to cook the meal and do the groceries and eat all the stuff myself. Yeah. I think of it as the hand, similar to the hand selling experience you can get in a yeah. great independent bookstore, but with a wider array of potential booksellers to talk to you and you get assigned to one who knows exactly right. what to recommend for someone who reads what you read. Yeah. Uh, and since you did mention being able to tell the chef what you're allergic to, we do, if you're thinking like, oh man, I'm kind of picky or I have these certain yep. triggers that I want to avoid. That's what that item on the survey that says anything else you want to tell us exists for. And I've been really pleased to see that our customers are using that so far to say like, don't send me anything where the dog dies or don't mm. send me anything where something horrible happens to children. Uh, we are totally happy to work around that. But been I've been working on this for so long, like for so long that I was in love with it and then frustrated by it and then completely bored of it and then excited about it again. Like yep. I'm, I'm in the love is lovelier the second time around already <laughs> with, with it, but ch please check it out. Yeah. It's my, go check out the site yeah. at least, you know, if, if you yeah. don't think it's for you, uh, and you can give us feedback. Is there a feedback form without ordering there? I don't even know. No, there so is not. If you have feedback that just for, for us, um, or the show about it, you know, thoughts, desires, wants, concerns, joys even, you can email us at podcast. Yeah, at joys would be right. great. Yeah, there's also a link in the show notes. You know, it's, it's my, yeah, mytbr.co. Um, there's that. Should we do another sponsor? You we'll know, see. We'll let's see. talk about Barnes & Noble. Yeah, we got some catch-up to do. Um, go ahead, take so, this one. All right, so in Barnes & Noble follow-up, last week we talked about the strange lawsuit that Demos Parneros had filed. The um, CEO had been fired from Barnes & Noble, has filed a lawsuit against Barnes & Noble, alleging that uh, they were alleging defamation and that the way that they fired him and the original statements that they made allowed the public to infer that he had done something related to sexual harassment, which Barnes and Noble followed up with a statement of their own that actually had specifics and said, yes, it was Let's not sexual infer. harassment. <laughs> like, yes, actually let us confirm that the things we've allowed people to infer about you are the reasons that we fired you. Um, and that also there has been some very, some allegations about Parneros's relationship with Lynn Riggio, the way that Riggio allegedly treated Parneros, Barnes and Noble denied all of that. That whole thing was really weird. So then it was just confusing. And I think we made lots of sounds about yes, that. Yes, we did. Last week, Publishers Weekly um, spoke with publishers this week. And the headline is Publishers Puzzled frustrated by Barnero's lawsuit. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them said it was indecipherable. They don't know what to make of the news. Um, publishers have said it's clear that the time has come for Barnes & Noble to find new leadership. Um, they need to take action. They need capital to do it. Um, and executive, publishing executives are not against the idea of Barnes & Noble being sold, but they really don't want to see it go to Amazon, which PW does note is a long shot at best, given the history between Barnes and Noble and Amazon, yeah. that a deal like that could bring up antitrust issues. But there are some uh, anonymous quotes from folks who run publishing, uh, publishing houses about uh, basically everyone is confused about what actually happened between Parneros and Barnes and Noble and really puzzled and worried um, about the future of Barnes and Noble and how the future of Barnes and Noble will affect publishing. Yeah. Uh, they, I mean, the only 
pick off our list. Well, actually, the only one besides Amazon as a, a, a suitor that's mentioned is Indigo, mm-hmm. which but they don't get Publishers Weekly didn't get into the sort of realities of the finances and things that would have to go into that. Um, but they said this anonymous publisher said that would make sense. I, I just don't see that it's it's going to happen. Um, you know. <laughs> If if they ever if if Amazon ever wanted to buy Barnes and Noble and wanted their best shot at clearing antitrust hurdles, without my commentary, my political beliefs aside, this current administration would be the time to do it. Yeah. Though, though the White House has a particular animosity to to Bezos, so it's a fraught <laughs> situation. I mean, that would be a situation where the administration could exert some punitive Bezos yeah. things because they and hate the Washington, you know, all the kind of stuff yeah, that goes into, it's just fraught. It is fraught as fraught. It is. Me. It is very fraught. And I think it's important to note here that like, of course, Publishers Weekly is asking publishers yes. what they think about this, but what's ultimately good for Barnes and Noble might not be the same thing no. as what's ultimately good for publishers as a result of Barnes and Noble's decisions. Mm-hmm. So whatever happens to Barnes and Noble, publishers are going to have feelings about about it. I think it's good for publishers that Barnes and Noble continues to exist. Um, what Barnes and Noble does, what kind of leadership they come to, what kind of future business decisions they make will certainly affect publishers. But I think it's very possible that we could end up in a situation where Barnes and Noble does well for itself, but in a way that publishing might not like as much. And, and, and the, and the follow-ups to that follow-up is, or the follow-on, I guess, is, <laughs> is that the longer you wait, the better deal you're going to get on Barnes & Noble because oh boy, quarterly results were in and sales fell 6.9% um, compared to last year, quarter over quarter. Mm-hmm. Operating loss of $6.2 million up from... Six- uh, the from, operating loss was 16.2 Oh, sorry. What did I say? Six? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 16.2 and up from last quarter, or from last year, the same quarter last year by a million dollars. Being a recorded decline in earnings was due to lower sales, partially offset by 22 million expense reductions. Comp store sales dropped 6.1% for the quarter. Uh, they say the quarter, the sales trends improved every month in the quarter. But they were down. They just kept being down. Some of that is, if you've already fallen 15%, can you go down? I mean, at some point, mm-hmm. you're going to get a dead cat bounce off that. Um, I don't know if people know that phrase, but even a dead cat bounces doesn't mean it's alive. It just will bounce when it hits the ground. Um, in August, comp store sales were down only 0.8%, Barnes & Noble reported. Again, is that the strength of Barnes & Noble or is it because we've got Magnolia Table and Fire and Fury and Co? You know, who knows exactly? Mm-hmm. That can go off there. Um, our team, this is Regio, our team of merchants in the entire store management group from the top to bottom realize that cutting expenses does not alone provide a path to the long-term value of any retail business. Therefore, we're not going to do just that, but there's no specifics. There's no nothing right. there. Yeah, Not short good. and long. Yeah, short and long-term focus is to grow our top line, and by doing so, provide us the cash flow needed to grow our business. But how? I don't. I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, it's going to open four new stores in the second quarter, but but three of those are just relocations. So one, one, one new store uh, in the quarter. I don't know how much like. If you're, Does Barnes & Noble even need to be opening new stores? Well, if you're going to grow top-line growth and you can't just cut expenses, I don't know what else you're supposed to... I guess you mm. just get more people to buy from your existing stores. You've got to do more stuff to get people to buy online. Like, I don't know enough about retail at all to know, like, okay, what else is there? Like, 
your average receipt has to go up somehow. I, I, I feel like they've been in this business long enough. If they had some magic bullet, they would have shot it a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there we go. I feel like, in a way, I haven't felt as long as we've been doing this show, which is now five years, more than five years, more than five years. that we're in the end game of this phase of Barnes and Noble in a way I haven't felt before for all mm-hmm. the saber rattling for all not saber rattling, for all the, for all the, the sky is falling talk that we've had over time. It really does feel like a combination of the turmoil at the top of the company and the turmoil on the bottom line. So from top to bottom, nothing is going right here. Um, not to mention the fact that the wider economy is booming so you're still down. I mean, it makes it the, the in a way, the, this is kind of sugarcoated considering how well the overall economy yeah. is doing. Think of how bad they'd be doing if the economy was, um, it was doing badly. And I also, I share your feeling that we're seeing the end of this version of Barnes and Noble in a way we haven't before, especially because we talked, I can't remember if it was like six, six months, a year ago, sometime in the last year or so about Barnes and Noble cutting like all of the lead positions that were salaried positions sort of between just being a bookseller and being management. And that's a, that was a giant expense to cut. I don't know what, what other kinds of across the board expense cutting they could do in terms of at least personnel, um, and still function Mm -hmm. and still, you know, have enough bodies in the building, uh, to run those stores. Um, really interesting. I would, I always want to know what the how is. And so these kinds of statements never are never satisfying to me. Like, but tell me, how are you going to yeah. grow the top line? But just by talking about it, like, uh, of course that's the goal, but what's the plan? <laughs> you, I mean, they'd have to sell, they'd have to sell a lot of the year of magical thinking and do a lot of year of magical <laughs> thinking to make this work. Because how do you cut staff and, and grow top line? I mean, Sometimes cost cutting is useful if then that capital gets used to fund growth. But if you're doing it just to reduce losses, you don't that money you don't have that money to spend on. I don't, you know, I'm just saying something random like opening a bunch of bars, right? Mm-hmm. The money to do all those renovations and hiring and staffing and marketing, you're just going to lose more money. So and they don't have a lot left in the tank. That's why they're saying they need new capital, something else, so that you can fund growth and change. Because just changing the course is expensive to do. Um, anyway, I, I don't know that we're on death watch here. I feel like we're, I mean, I don't know. Would we feel differently? I guess this was the thing, but would we feel differently if this thing about, we almost sold to another book retailer oh. in, the, in the airing of the laundry, that note flew out of someone's pants while the laundry was on the line. Would, I mean, I think we would feel differently if we didn't yeah. know that. I, I have a two-part answer to that okay, question. Yes. I would feel differently, I think, if I didn't know that there had been a potential buyer who ultimately said no. Right. And if we knew who the potential buyer was that said no, then uh, I would know how different to feel. Uh-huh. That's interesting. Okay. Well, the, the ongoing saga um, of Barnes & Noble... Boy, I hope it turns out well for, I guess both of us have said from the beginning that, or beginning, I think we're sort of on the same page. Tell me how wrong, I'm Mm -hmm. sure I'm wrong to some degree, (laughs) that we want some version of Barnes & Noble to continue. Like, Mm -hmm. does it need to be called Barnes & Noble? Probably not. Is it better for it to go away or to be Barnes & Noble by Amazon? That I don't know the answer to. Um, for those of you who've listened to the show for a long time, I am skeptical of the contingent that says Amazon will produce a monoculture mm-hmm. up to a point. You know, skepticism runs out. You know, when when the sky sometimes the sky actually falls, right? Right. Um, 
that might be a bright line for me. If suddenly Amazon now had the largest physical retail footprint and 60% of the print market and 90% of the ebook market. Yeah. At that point, I'm concerned. Um, I still feel like, uh, did you hear this? When we, have we talked a little bit about Toys R Us going out of business on the show? Did we mm-hmm. talk about that? Because mm-hmm. it's, it's uh, orthogonal to Barnes & Noble. Mm-hmm. But Mattel, I guess, put together a bid to buy Barnes & Noble only because using it as a, uh, a firewall against Amazon, they would have another outlet to sell their stuff, right? You know, that Amazon... Oh, wait, to buy Barnes & Noble or to no, no, buy, buy Toys, Toys R Us? Us. Okay. I'm using, okay. I'm, wait, I'm sorry. This analogy is a little um, circuitous, but I'm getting there in a minute. To me, it feels like at some point, a publisher, oh, mm-hmm. just for defensive purposes... Like PRH. I mean, that would be the one that would, I mean, that would make the most sense. You would think, you know, at some, again, I don't know what the, Bertelsmann is a huge multi-billion dollar corporation. They could do it. Now, Mm -hmm. do you have all sorts of weird things? If I'm, if I'm another big five publisher like Macmillan and PRH buys Barnes and Noble, what's worse for me? Selling my books through PRH or not? At that point, I, there's all sorts of weird fraud. It's fraught in a different way, but you mm-hmm. want, I start to wonder about that. Well, which is fraught. This is a similar fraughtness to, <laughs> um, to what we've talked about for a long time of both of us thinking it would be really interesting to see a big publisher. And we usually yeah. use Penguin Random House as the example, give Amazon the middle finger and say, yes. we're just going to sell our books on our own, which raises the question ultimately of would PRH be better off with, you know, what's worse for them, mm-hmm. not selling to, not selling through Amazon and or selling through Amazon and having to deal with all the Amazonness of Amazon, yeah. uh, and I think that's a. I, if I were, oh man, I'm just guessing here, but I would think for Macmillan, um, publishers don't seem to be as competitive with each other as they have uh, yeah. been in the past. If you're Macmillan and PRH owns Barnes and Noble, you still need to be in front of those readers. It's the same decision that PRH implicitly makes about still selling through Amazon is mm-hmm. it's better to be in front of the readers than not be in front of the readers, even if the way you get there is through a company that you don't like or that you feel intimidated by or, you know, any number of reasons that are not great. Yeah. So anyway, I mean, again, if Barnes and Noble goes away, PRH is e- even the, um, uh, metaphorical finger that they could raise. If that go, if if the Barnes and Noble situation goes away, then you, they really are in a in a spot. Mm-hmm. I mean, then yeah. then the, even that move, which they I can't see them doing on any timeline that looks probable, goes away. You know, you really can't. Then where really where you're selling books, independent bookstores and Costco and Target. I mean, they sell a lot of books, but boy, that's not a boat you really want to have to paddle if you can avoid it at all costs. Um, anyway, okay, let me do another sponsor, and then we'll get to like. I don't know, actual news. I mean, I don't know, new news. <laughs> Man, news, we have news. like 10 minutes of this show I after. know, it's good. we have to go through it. So The Boy in the Keyholes are next, sponsored by Stephen Giles. Here's, this, here's what it's about. Nine-year-old Samuel lives alone in a once great estate in Surrey with the family's housekeeper, Ruth. His father is dead and his mother has been abroad for months, purportedly tending to her husband's faltering business. Beyond her spor- sporadic postcards, Samuel hears nothing from his mother. He misses her dearly and maps her journey in an atlas in her study. Samuel's life is otherwise regulated by Ruth, who runs the house with an iron fist. As rumors in town begin to swirl, Samuel wonders whether something more sinister is afoot. Perhaps his mother did not leave, but was murdered by Ruth. Oh. A fiendishly efficient 
gorgeously written and nasty little thrill ride, says Lindsay Fay, author of The Gods of Gotham, about a boy left alone in the estate. For fans of, peop- you know, of authors like Shirley Jackson, Sarah Waters, or Daf- Daphne du Maurier, um, film rights have already be- been optioned by new regency, so you know book- movies they've made like The Revenant, 12 Years of Slave, and Birdman. I know the first two were books. Was Birdman based on a book? I don't think I know that, if that's Ooh, true. Ooh, I don't know. Um, received praise from a, for a variety of sources, sources, including Josh Mallerman, who wrote Bird Box, which I know we've talked about on the show mm-hmm. before, saying, you'll talk about this book with everyone you meet. It's that exciting, the kind of book that can be read in one sitting. That's The Boy at the Keyhole by Stephen Giles. Thanks to them for sponsoring this show. I'd like to have fiendishly efficient on my business cards. That's pretty good. Or my- that is pretty good. Speaking of PRH, hey, this is follow-up we could at the top. Yes. Uh, do you want me to do this? You want to do this? You do it. Okay, so... You take it. We've been talking about library ebook licensing. Brings all Woo. the kids to the yard. Um, so PRH is changing the terms to its library ebook lending. For those of you who've been keeping a chart of the library <laughs> ebook lending <laughs> licenses and are not librarians, or I guess who are, you'll know that PRH had a flat fee in perpetuity license structure. I think it was $90 and you'd get a li- one license that could check out forever, which is nice for books that are going to be checked out a lot over time. Not so nice for things you don't know are going to sell or going to have a, can be heavy, heavily weighted toward the beginning or something like that. So as of October 20, uh, October 21st, October 1st <laughs> of this year, PRH is moving to a perpetual access model from, God darn it, from a perpetual access model to a metered model, lower prices on eBooks that expire after two years. So more like a HarperCollins model, which I think most p- librarians said mm-hmm. to us is kind of the, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's, Goldilocks means it's perfect, but it's the compromise they're most mm-hmm. uh, comfortable with. Is, is it, is that, am I characterizing yeah, that right? Yeah, you know, there's, PRH says here that they're doing this in a response to um, feedback that they've gotten from libraries about the reality of circulation numbers and that circulations for many titles drop off dramatically yeah. after six to eight months from the initial release, especially for fiction bestsellers. So they're saying most of the librarians are telling us they would rather pay the lower price across frontlist and backlist in exchange for a copy that expires after a given time period. Um, this was interesting to me, and it's probably just recency bias because the big feedback that we received from one of our listeners um, in the Insiders Forum was the opposite, that in her library, they would rather do the one-time purchase because then you save all of the time and energy of reassessing uh, what to keep in the, Mm -hmm. what to keep, what to restock, and what to get rid of uh, every time. But can't make everybody happy. Um, The headline here is basically, I think the way I have it in the notes is Penguin Random House is changing their library ebook lending, but don't worry, it's not like Tor. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, uh, not really a, anything to be mad at here. It doesn't affect readers at all. I mean, I guess I was thinking about this and looking at this again. I mean, it's weird that it's metered and it expires. Like, couldn't it just be that you have a license and every time someone checks it out, you, you cough up 75 cents or whatever, forever. Mm-hmm. So you have to renew mm-hmm. the licensor I don't know. Like, make it like a gumball machine. You get a there gumball, you got to put a quarter in there every time. You don't have to, like, release the gumball I machine. It's kind of seems I assume there's a reason for that, but I would like to know what it is. If you are a library person who knows this, please email us at podcast at bookriot.com. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like to, I'd like to know that, too. Might be have to be something about... 
we're working on this is boring back and stuff, but we're revamping our own internal accounting system. So now my brain is, is like, is there some accounting reason they want to do it this way? <laughs> they can realize the revenue up front. Maybe makes oh, sense. Maybe. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I'd like to know that, but it seems to me like I can check out the movie as many times. Well, boy, I'm dating myself now. There's one blockbuster <laughs> left at Redbox. Redbox, those things by the grocery store. Mm-hmm. Every time I want a movie, I pay a dollar. So right. it seems like every time one of your patrons checks out a book, Pay the pay the pay the pay the lady. Um, I'm not sure. So there's that. Also, PRH. I really like this story. I think it's really, cool and yeah. smart. You take this one. I really like this one too. PRH is teaming up with Headcount, which is a nonpartisan voter registration organization, to launch a campaign called Book the Vote, which is a company-wide effort to encourage voter registration. Um, PRH is going to provide bookstores with tools they need to create their own displays, community nights, and other voter registration initiatives. Uh, it kicks off on National Voter Registration Day, which is also organized by Headcount on. September 25th. Uh, That focuses on registering voters at concerts, music festivals, and other cultural events. Um, And apparently the registration drive was originally spurred by the upcoming publication of Glimmer of Hope, Hmm. How Tragedy Sparked a Movement, which is coming out from Razorbill in October. And the book was, this is the book by the students of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, where the gunman gunman killed 17 people in February. Uh, So this uh, headcount is a nonpartisan voter registration, as we've said, but clearly this has its origins uh, in uh, PRH's participation in Book the Vote or in creating Book the Vote has its origins in a, a specific historic and political moment uh, in the country, and they're dedicated to registering especially young voters across 50 states. The registration drives are going to be staffed um, at events with PRH authors like Chip Conley, Hank Green, John Green, Deborah Harkness, Marie Lou, DeRay McKesson, Brad Meltzer, Jody Pico, Ransom Riggs, and Jacqueline Woodson. And in addition to registration drives at bookstores, Book the Vote is going to conduct events at venues ranging from 1,200-seat theaters to public libraries and schools. I could not love this more. So great. I don't think it's great. We've, we talk incessantly on this show about how reading uh, and literature are inherently political. They've always been inherently political. Owning a bookstore is political. Um, when Josh was on, when Josh Christie was on with me a month or so ago when you were out sometime this summer, mm-hmm. we talked about uh, how he and his business partner, Emily Murtaugh, made the decision for their store to have a political perspective. They make donations to the ACLU and to other things um, and to really be explicit about it. Bookstores are hearts of the community and literature is inherently political and using the combination of those things. Plus you have people in your store who are interested in ideas and in what's happening in the world and making sure they register to vote uh, is really important, especially right now. Um, that reminded me, we didn't put a link in the notes to talk about, but I think we were talking on Slack how we wanted to make sure we noticed it, that as is his want, uh, the president has has sent a cease and desist letter to the publishers. I don't even know who the publisher is now. I've lost track mm. of Bob Woodward's forthcoming oh, book, yes. Fear, mm-hmm. uh, because that's what he does. That threatens people and then does nothing um, and with no basis to do anything. So that's why they do nothing but you know make a big show of being wronged and so on and so forth. So that follows um, cease and desist letters against Omarosa's book and Fire and Fury. Um, you know, 
all the all the all the books that begin with F, I guess he's going to send <laughs> cease and desist letters. Yes, against he will get to write his own book beginning with F called Futility at some point about these <laughs> cease and desist letters, I suppose. But you know, just we don't want to we don't want to keep talking about it, but we don't want to let it pass unmentioned because it's worth mentioning and worth remembering and worth noting the extraordinary extraordinariness mm-hmm. of a president through the personal lawyer. Um, trying to suppress the publication of a book. And we seem to have gone up sort of up the credibility scale. Like it's hard to think right. of a, you know, like a, of a, of a person who has more <laughs> built up political credibility. Yeah. Than Bob more Woodward. bona fides than Bob yeah, Woodward. Right. If, if, if uh, Robert Redford plays you in a movie, um, <laughs> you, you, you've got some juice and <laughs> At this point, like at this point, it became kind of laughable. I mean, I don't know. There it's, was something about the Fire and Fury one where it felt like um, Michael Wolf. It wasn't a sleight well, of hand, but it was a little different. Well, this is Woodward doing reporting, people on the record, sometimes right. anonymous, yeah, when, but it's just like different. It just feels different. Michael Wolf has that. Fire and Fury has that like salacious, gossipy yes, right. angle. The content is still terrifying, mm-hmm. but salacious, gossipy angle. Bob Woodward is serious journalist. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that I think trying to suppress gossip about yourself is one thing. Trying to suppress very serious, deeply reported journalism is another. Um, The Washington Post earlier this week had the transcript of a call where Bob Woodward uh, called President Trump to tell him, you know, I tried to reach you so that I could interview you so that you could tell me your version of the events that I'm reporting in this book. Uh, And if you read the whole thing, it's it's like who's on first of um, Trump deflecting and denying that he knew that it ever got to him uh, and then admitting that he knew that he, that Woodward was interviewing people. It's very, it's worth finding uh, just again, to remind yourself how extraordinary and not normal this behavior is. But um, Woodward saying, you know, uh, these are deeply reported stories with sources on the record and they tell me the events that occurred and everyone that was in the room when the events occurred. And what Trump wants to know is, well, are you naming names? Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> Which is also a very interesting and revealing question there. And, you um, know, it, well, someone like Woodward, I think, wouldn't mind being legitimately sued because then you get to do discovery. Right. right? And then you'd actually get oh, to and depose it, and interview people. Well, and Woodward has the power of a very yeah, large right. legal department behind him. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, yeah. so anyway, just we're, we're putting that in the record for posterity, I guess. So when mm-hmm. people will say in 50 years were people talking about how weird and crazy and disturbing and terrifying this was, we can say, yes, yeah. yes, indeed we were. We right. did recognize we're, that this is wild and not, we're tired not of it happening. We're tired of having to talk about it, but we think it's important to talk about it. Um, so if that also makes you tired, maybe hit one of these book events and get registered to vote. If you're not registered already, I would say also be sure you are registered if you think you are. You don't, you yes, don't need me to tell check. you why that's important at this point, but this is your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man telling you <laughs> to, to remind yourself to go check out uh, your registration status. If you're tired and you need a pick-me-up, 
Yes. This is maybe my best let's, segue let's do it. Let's do it. ever. Our friends at Litographs, oh, which is... very nicely. Okay. Sorry. Right? Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Just, no, continue no, no, appreciating no, okay. me. I'll just over here nod in the background. <laughs> our friends at Litographs, which is the company that puts the entire text of a book onto a t-shirt or a poster, are expanding with a new business called Canary Cold Brew. It delivers cold brew coffee straight to your door. This is a subscription service. They launched it today on Kickstarter with a goal of $10,000. As I am looking at it at 4 p.m., they have already reached 8,000 of their $10,000 goal with 30 days to go. So it they're was 2,000 f- when I looked at it this morning when yeah. you sent it to me. Yeah. They're going to fund this puppy and then some. Hmm. Uh, it's great people over there at Litographs. We've enjoyed working with them. But I just think this is a smart idea. I think what you said when we talked about it on Slack was that people like drinking cold brew more than they like making cold I brew. I think that is true. And this way you can try it out. All the backers of the Kickstarter or many of the backing levels of the Kickstarter, you get a sample pack of the Canary Cold Brew. And ultimately, it'll be a subscription that you can set to come to your door. They're offering the original blend, which is the wake you up in the morning version, and then afternoon blend, which has less caffeine. So you still get your pick me up, but won't be awake all night. Um, I I think this is just really smart and an interesting pivot from a company uh, that has Seriously, right? Yeah. Primarily literary things. But as we know, the book people do love coffee. Uh, so we'll have a link in the show notes to the Canary Cold Brew Kickstarter if you would like to get in on this business. Yeah, that's, not, that's, not, that's not a paid pl- spot. It's we not. Like those folks they're, over they're there friends, and we think this yeah, is cool. Good, we just want to talk about it. It's friends of the pod. <laughs> friends of the pod. Uh, you can get show notes to this and all back episodes of the Book Riot podcast at bookriot.com slash listen. You can send us an email podcast at bookriot.com especially if you want to tell us about tbr you want to tell us about why why library licenses are not like bubblegum machines don't go into all the reasons but mostly the one reason which is could could we not just pay for uh, a paper use in perpetuity rather than this metered licensing you have to renew and so on and so forth Um, go check out my tbr.co there's a link in the show notes tell us something about that podcast at bookwright.com. Really anxious for you guys to take a look at it and see what you think. Rebecca, we'll talk to you next week. Jeff, have a good one.